0: Ready? Good evening, and welcome to the annual Henry S. Jennings Visiting Lectureship. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. We'll go ahead and get started. We'd like to thank you and welcome you to the annual Henry S. Jennings Visiting Lectureship. There's no commercial support for today's activity. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity, and we will appreciate your feedback. If you have a question, we will answer those at the end of the session. And if you're viewing online, please enter the question into the Q&A bubble and we'll ask at the end. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Aaron Raybon Rojas, who is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for GME and the Program Director of the new Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program.
1: Dr. Rojas. Good evening, everyone. Are you guys excited to be here? Good evening, everyone. There we go. Um, I first of all wanna uh, thank you for inviting me to be here and asking me to say a few words. Uh, Again, my name is Dr. Erin Raybon Rojas. I am one of the pulmonary intensivists and again, director for diversity, equity, and inclusion here uh, for GME here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. On behalf of the GME program and my colleagues, I would like to welcome you all and thank you all for being here for the fourth annual Henry S. Jennings Visiting Lectureship in Medical Humanities. Whether you are here with us in Walter's Auditorium or joining us virtually, thank you for your support and your interest. First, let me say that this series would not be possible if it had not been for the signature gift to the Northeast Georgia Health System Foundation from Dr. Jennings family. The goal for this lecture series is to give our medical professionals and community at large access to learn from scholars in the field of medical humanities. Please, let's take a moment to give a round of applause for their generosity and the impact of their gift. Thank you. I am super excited to welcome our speaker tonight, Dr. John C. Wellens III. Dr. Wellens is joining us from Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Monroe Carell Junior Children's Hospital where he holds quite a few impressive titles. I will list just a few of his accomplishments. He is the Cal Turner Chair and Chief of Pediatric Neurosurgery, Professor of Neurosurgery, Pediatrics, Plastic Surgery and Radiology, Vice Chair, Department of Neurologic Surgery, Vice Chair for Clinical Research, a section of Surgical Sciences and Medical Director, or Surgical Outcomes Center for Kids, also known as SOX. In addition to these responsibilities, Dr. Wellens has also done and continues to do a significant amount of scientific and non-scientific writing. He has been a contributor to publications such as New York Times Sunday Review, Time Magazine, Gun and Garden Magazine, Fresh Air NPR, and OprahDaily.com. Dr. Wellens recently debuted his book, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his patients, and their stories of grace and resilience just this past June, and it has been received with rave reviews. In fact, The New Yorker has recently listed Dr. Wellen's book as a top read for 2022. Dr. Wellens' non-scientific writing focuses specifically on his specialty of pediatric neurosurgery, but also the broader field of medicine and the profound lessons he's learned from the children and parents that he's cared for for over 25 years. Today, Dr. Wellens will present, you tell my baby's story for all the world to hear, the communal and redemptive act of storytelling in medicine. Please let us give a Northeast Georgia welcome to Dr. Wellens.
2: All right. Well, thank you all so much, Aaron. Thank you. I'm so honored to uh, be here today. I have to say that this part of the country is meaningful to me. I was uh, recounting that I actually went to boarding school relatively close to here near Chattanooga at a school called Macaulay and spent a few years and a few days with friends who lived up in this area. So it's wonderful to be back and it's wonderful to see so many faces. I'm very grateful to the Northeast Georgia Medical Center, also to Donna and Jennifer for their help. Um, I'd like to you know, thank um, John Detzel, the DIO for the invitation, and also specifically Hank and Betsy, who I will get back to later. I would also like to take the opportunity um, because I think that uh, we go nowhere uh, without the shoulders of the giants and the men and women who've come before us. So I'd just like to take a second to acknowledge Dr. Ducker, who's here uh, today. He was the past chairman at University of Maryland and also uh, on faculty at Hopkins. And I found out that uh, he was mentor and teacher to one of my closest friends and chairman at Vanderbilt, Reed Thompson. So welcome, sir. Honored to have you here. Thank you. As I said earlier, perhaps you should be the one up here telling the stories and not me. (laughs) Um, So why, uh, why the long title? You know, why you tell my baby story for all the world to hear? Well, you know, one of the things that we're told in medicine oftentimes is to keep things in. Um, particularly with uh, the HIPAA regulations, uh, we are not really supposed to share, we're not supposed to talk, we're not supposed to talk out loud about it, and um, we're supposed to keep these things close to our chest. Um, as I begin the process of thinking about writing some of these stories down, and I'll talk a little bit about that process later, um, it, uh, I would approach certain patients um, and their parents patients if they were older uh, or, or parents if the, if the kids were young and I would ask if, if it would be okay if I could write about their child there was some particular aspect of, of grief or hope or, or joy or oftentimes those two things write together like inseparable twins and uh, and diamond's son KJ uh, is the is the is the, the main focus of the of the chapter called Gunshot Wound to the Head. So I think you can imagine what that is about. Um, And a few of the families, well, first off, 100% of the families said yes. And I said, I can change the name, I can change the date, I can change the age, I can change the gender, or I cannot run it at all. It is your story. Well, 100% said yes. But a few of them like Diamond said, but you have to read it to me in front of me. And so I remember sitting down uh, in one of the conference rooms at our children's hospital across the table uh, and remember the name of the topic of this chapter. And, and I read it to Diamond and, and Diamond's mother too. So KJ's grandmother. And every once in a while I would stop and I would ask her, are you okay? And she would say, you, 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 keep, you keep reading this, Dr. J. And finally, I got to the end and she had looked down and she looked back up at me and she said, Dr. J, you tell my baby story. You tell it for all the world to hear. And that, to me, really helped kind of gird my attitude towards why I thought this book was important. Because this book is not um, come see me because I'm the best neurosurgeon in the land. That is not what this book is. This book is about the children. This book is about their stories. This book is about Sophia and Delayla and Hannah and Alyssa and Allie and Jordan and all the kids that have gone through these remarkable transformational experiences. And some of them lived and some of them did not live. But why do we write about these things? Well, you know, I think some of it's captured in the title. There's a good bit of grace and a good bit of resilience that we see, but in medicine, as many of us know, joy and grief are right beside each other. You know, I've I've argued with my with my priestly friends. Betsy, don't get mad at me. Betsy, where are you? I don't make sure I don't get too mad. Yeah, I've argued, argued with my priestly friends. Arguing means there was a beer involved at some point. Um, <laughs> that uh, that sometimes there's more prayer in the cafeteria of a hospital on a regular day of the week than there may be on a Sunday morning. And a lot of uh, issues about health and illness and wellness is about miracles asked for, prayers answered, prayers quote unanswered. Uh, so we really live in a place where the human condition is laid bare. Now, uh, I am by far not the first person to have figured this out. Um, as Dr. Grootman wrote in The New Yorker article, there is a long line of physicians who have felt the wash of this human condition over the years. Certainly Anton Chekhov is one. William Carlos Williams is another, you know, the imimitable Oliver Sachs, who um, uh, a friend of mine, Named Peter Catapano, he was he was my editor at the New York Times. He had the opportunity to edit the last five pieces that Oliver Sacks wrote. Uh, and uh, in conversation with him, it was an extremely moving experience for him, just as the editor, knowing that it was a discussion about Oliver Sacks, knowing that he was dying, um, and he had such a profound impact on those of those of us in medicine and those of us in the medicine and humanities world. I can't stand in Georgia and not uh, mention two particular physician writers who have meant a tremendous amount of me. One is Farrell Sams. I think the book, uh, When All the World Was Young, is one of the best books ever written. Uh, and if you've not had a chance to read it and some of the other books that come along with it, I, I highly recommend it. But I'd like to mention another uh, physician And I love the fact that there's an Emory tie-in. And that's a cardiologist by the name of John Stone. When I was a first year medical student, I was freshly come from Ole Miss, where I decided with my long hair and tie-dyed t-shirt that I was going to either cater to the human condition in the physical sense as a doctor, the mental sense as a teacher, or the spiritual sense as a priest. And I was in no way prepared to be a priest at that point. Um, and so I decided to go into medicine. Uh, I'd been an English major there, had the opportunity to study under Barry Hanna and Alan Douglas and um, Shakespearean um, teachers who were the professors who were there looking at the similarities between kind of romantic area and uh, romantic era and Shakespearean literature and Southern literature, which was really fascinating to see. But there I was in medical school, And um, they gave us a copy of uh, a book called On Doctoring, which was an anthology of books. So this is back in 1995. And one of the essays was by John Stone. And I remember being very attracted. I thought it was just an amazing piece of writing. And lo and behold, I was in the cadaver lab as a first year medical student. And I hear that John Stone is visiting and he's downstairs. He's going to give a lecture and then he's going to going to be books to buy and books to sell so i immediately take off my lab coat and wash my hands and i go downstairs and i listen to his lecture and i'm so moved by what how he talks and how he's written about the, the heart and the difference between the literal heart and the metaphorical heart and then i wait in line to go and get a book and get a book signed and i walk up to him and he's looking down, he grabs the book and he goes, he goes, are you a first year medical student? <laughs> he said, yes. He goes, you smell like formaldehyde. <laughs> and then he wrote something in the first, in the very first page of my book. And it says to Jay at the beginning. And um, I've reflected a lot about that over the years. And one of the great pleasures that I've had, there's two great pleasures that I've had Having written this book, one is that um, the number of medical students that I've had the opportunity to interact with, who are similar to me, maybe not so much smelling like formaldehyde, but deep in the Krebs cycle, you know, maybe the eleventh time they've had to learn it, or the uh, the urea cycle, or whatever class they were in, and, and to have them come and talk to me about how thinking about this aspect of medicine is so important. As an aside, the second thing that I love is. I've always bemoaned the fact that my last name begins with W, but the number of times I've had friends take pictures of my book on the shelf and it be next to Eudora Weldy is just an amazing (laughs) honor to me because I think she is such a fantastic writer. Just to even be in like her book's presence is is phenomenal to me. And being from Mississippi, obviously, that kind of seeps up into into my very core. So why do we write? there's lots of reasons to write. Um, you know, you can write a editorial. I wrote a editorial in Time Magazine that was mentioned. Um, it was about, um, about assault weapons, what they do to children. And it was trying to balance the fact that I am a son of the South and, and grew up with a healthy respect for, um, for weapons and for rifles and for hunting and, gotten away from those days uh, but also what i've seen in the emergency rooms and operating rooms can be pretty tough so one reason to ride is to try to sway people or make a point or to make an impassioned plea but that's not really what i'm talking about here today i think there's a few main things i want to focus on and i'd like to You know, it's like uh, I always attribute it to Alan Iverson. I don't know if you said it or not about shooters are going to shoot, but I'm a storyteller. So storytellers are going to tell some stories. So I think one of the first reasons to write is to try to um, engender a sense of commonality. And so uh, I'd like to read a short piece that I wrote years back uh, as a medical student um, uh, that uh, is about a field that I was extraordinarily interested in. Uh, and perhaps a little shout out to Hank, who may or may not be on, uh, on uh, Zoom uh, listening, but it's on uh, experience I had. And the name of it is called Heart Sounds. Here you go, smart guy. Take this patient, said the resident, as he handed me an index card and walked hurriedly on down the hall, his white coat flaring out. Over his shoulder, remember, he's your patient to talk to, to examine, yours. Got it. I said to no one in particular while standing up on my tiptoes as the resident sped around the corner, hand flashing to his pager as he disappeared. On my first day of medicine at the VA as a third year medical student, I had just enough training over the prior year to know that I could really hurt people if I didn't do my job. We were students, but there was no doubt that we had real responsibility with our patients. Residents and interns circled us like sheepdogs keeping us in check, But it was our job to take the history, examine our patients, present to the attending physicians, offering diagnoses when we could, and connect with the patient and the family. All of it was to prepare us for our residency and our new life as physicians. Our successes briefly bolstered us and our failures came home with us and lingered around the edges. My patient was Anthony a mid-20s Army cook who was a recovering IV drug user. He was also more recently recovering from an urgent median sternotomy after a Ross switch, where the chest is opened down the middle, through the breastbone, and the diseased aortic valve is removed under cardiopulmonary bypass and replaced with the patient's own healthy pulmonary valve. A donor valve is used to replace the switched pulmonary valve. He was also midway through a long course of antibiotics and had passed through the storms of heroin withdrawal and was out on the calmer seas seas on the other side. Regardless, he was in no way interested in talking to me, never responding to my questions about his background or his time in the military, only silence and a distant stare. That was until I put my stethoscope on his chest. His heart sounds nearly leapt out of his breast. Whoosh, came the crescendo, decrescendo, mid-systolic murmur of aortic stenosis, loud and clear, a four out of six. Then quickly during diastole, the low pitched rumble of mitral stenosis building just at the end, the results of scarring from infected vegetations on his mitral valve seen on echocardiogram. A cacophony of sound coming from the chest of a man otherwise so silent in life. Every morning they were there for three weeks on my rotation. Imagine opening the door to a symphony hall and hearing the sounds inside, then closing it and silence in again. I heard the sounds of his heart well more than that of his voice. Indeed, I began to feel that this was the way we were intended to communicate. Good morning, Anthony. He would nod. Anthony, you okay with me sitting here for a little while listening? I would ask every morning and every evening, nod. Often, I would arrive a little earlier and sit on the side of his bed just to understand the sounds sent up through the bell and tube, trying to sear them into my memory. Over time, I could identify where each sound was louder, high on the opposite chest for one, apex for the other, aortic stenosis, mitral stenosis, every day listening to what Anthony could tell me through the sounds of his heart, hypnotic, constant. Until the morning, it was not. One early morning near the end of my rotation, I settled into my familiar position on the side of Anthony's bed. In the darkness of his room, I warmed my hands by rubbing them together and slid the stethoscope under his standard issue VA pajamas. The cacophony was there, but right at the beginning of diastole, Right after the brass of aortic stenosis sounded the heart cycle. And just as the rumbling base of mitral stenosis warmed up, there was an ever so present, ever so slight, but present. Again, the same. Barely a whisper. I removed my stethoscope. Silence. Darkness. I replaced it to his chest. Right there, the interloper like a novice crashing the symphony stage. Aortic regurgitation. Was it possible, but ever so slight? On house staff rounds a few minutes later, I passed on my finding. The resident, somewhat disgruntled initially, listened and said he would run it by the attending. Soon afterwards, there was general agreement all around. Anthony then spiked a fever to 102.4 Fahrenheit. During the echocardiogram, that showed a new perivalvular abscess had formed around his aortic valve. The new murmur was the sound of the blood rushing back around the sides of the valve, regurgitating back into the ventricle, his heart dangerously dilating as it struggled to pump blood around his body. Anthony's breathing had become labored. He stared up at me from his bed, his eyes moist around the edges, his breath raspy and wet with fluid building up in his lungs we started to move in the familiar rhythm of resuscitation around him. He was taken back to the cardiac OR emergently for a valve revision. I heard later from the attending that had we not listened to his chest that morning and started the work up early, Anthony may not have survived. I never saw or interacted with him yet after that fateful morning. Postoperatively, he was whisked away directly to the cardiac ICU, impenetrable to even the most enterprising and responsible medical students. My own medical training took me on to the next rotation and Anthony's recovery ultimately took him home to his parents. When I think of him now, I can just make out his face turned away staring, but I can vividly hear his heart and remember those mornings in the darkness. So I think one of the ways that telling stories in medicine, can function is to establish a sense of commonality, establish a sense that we are like. We come from very similar backgrounds. We come from, um, often many of us in the room or many of us are married to people who are physicians who went through this type of training, who remember this time. Uh, You know, Dr. Jennings, trained at Grady, I trained at the University of Mississippi, that training was very similar, where we really were looked at as being, as students and as residents, as being the true caregivers for our patients. So I think it's important to know and to remember for a point later that the reason why we tell stories and the reason why people have sat around fires for hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of years is to get a sense of commonality, to say that I'm a little bit more like you than I'm, than I'm different from you. I think another reason to tell stories is to honor people. Certainly for me, you know, again, there's lots of reasons to write about medicine, but for me, one of the reasons is to establish a sense of commonality. Another reason is to write about people who have meant a great deal to me. In my book, I talk a, a lot about my father. Um, you know, it's, uh, the book is about the patients and it's about their stories. Uh, but I do weave a few stories about my dad into it. My dad um, was a successful uh, businessman, but also had a second life in the Air National Guard. And flying was as important to him as, as breathing. He literally saved up money until when he turned 16, he bought a Piper Cub and uh, got his pilot's license in Mississippi and began to fly. So I flew with him many, many years. And the stories that, uh, that I recount in there are about some meaningful times to me and, and some, some funny times that we had together. I also write about mentors and mentees. I also write about uh, a man that I um, uh, was just speaking about a moment ago uh, named Tim George. And Tim George... Uh, was a wonderful uh, pediatric neurosurgeon at duke he was in his second year of practice when i arrived and uh, tim was an african american pediatric neurosurgeon and he had a remarkable impact on me we would be operating together and he would you know he was from brooklyn and i was from mississippi and when there was a lull in the operating room, he would start to mimic me like I had an accent like Foghorn Leghorn. You know, I'll see, I'll see, pass me that, 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 out, there. He must out there. So. Uh But Tim had a way of making us all feel so good about ourselves, and so competent. And the life that he lived with his wife, Roz, and his, his uh, Tim Jr., and he just welcomed us into his home. And so I've, I've written some about Tim too. Tim passed away way too early in his life. Uh, but I had the opportunity to to be thankful to him too. you think about the name of that chapter is called bucket lines and I know that all of us out here can think about people who have been in our own bucket line and what I mean by that is that you know maybe it was maybe it was a boy scout leader, maybe it was a Girl scout leader maybe it was somebody in elementary school that took an interest in you and then all of a sudden it was a teacher in your high school and then it was somebody in your, uh, in your college. And then it was maybe a English professor that you really connected with. And then, then all of a sudden you're in medical school and you're really connecting with a person who does research in the neurosciences and then, and then a neurosurgeon and then another neurosurgeon or another internist. And then all of a sudden you find yourself at the age of 53 and you look back and you see this whole line of people that span back over all these years. And then you begin to feel some responsibility for being a part of other people's bucket lines too. And so you begin to really see in your brain all these really magnificent kind of woven patterns about how we are all really interconnected. And again, we are more alike than we are different. Now, I would like to to pull a couple of quotes because there are examples of why we write in medicine that I think are lovely, and I think that they're about Dr. Jennings, and and they're from his children. And I had the opportunity to to review some of these things, and so I'd like to read some of the words that Hank wrote about Dr. Jennings um, a few years ago after he passed away. Dad and his physician colleagues were true professionals, and exemplified for our age group that core of professionalism described so well by the renowned Judge Albert Tuttle who elegantly delivered the Emory University Commitments address in 1957. And then he quotes the judge, the professional is the one who provides service, service that wells up from the entire complex of his personality, which cannot be separated from his personal being. His only asset is himself. The judge admonishes Ferger, do not measure out your services on the apothecary scale and say only this for so much, rather be reckless and spendthrift pouring out your talent to all to whom it can be of service. Throw it away, waste it, and in the spending it will be increased. The job is there. You will see it. You need not consider what the task will cost you. It is not enough that you do your duty, the richness of life, and the performance above and beyond the call of duty. Hank goes on to write, How well those words characterize the great generation physicians of dad's era right here in Gainesville. And especially, Dad, they embodied the concept of servant leadership and were faithful stewards of a legacy that was theirs, if only for a while, to be passed on and magnified. I think that's a beautiful lens he's written through that of being a physician. And then I had the opportunity to review some of Betsy's words, Betsy's words, a physician, but also a priest. Daddy was a man of hope. As a physician, he knew all too well the centrality of holding on to hope in achieving healing and in wellness. Yet he also intuitively knew when, to use the wonderful phrase my husband David offered to a parishioner facing a terminal illness of her own mother, when to cast our hope in a different direction. Daddy was a man truly in touch with, quote, the hope that never disappoints, as St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. Truly a legacy to his children. And it's truly a wonderful thing to see his own children writing about him and, and honoring him using this wonderful way that we had to communicate to one another. And again, I think many of us can think back to this love and companionship and compassion and caring that we have had for our own parents over the years. So to both Hank and Betsy, I just I, I thought these are wonderful words and I wanted to share them. Uh, in the context of why we write, because this is why we write. Um, I think the third reason is to tell the story of someone or something that taps into universal truth. So we've talked about writing to establish a sense of commonality. We talked about, I like to write uh, to honor people who have meant something to me. But then also, I think we write to try to tap into a universal truth to say, what is it that that may um, have meaning to all of us or the majority of us or most of us or all of us, if it's a true universal truth. So my experience with this is that um, I um, was uh, had a lot of responsibilities at Vanderbilt. Somehow I've gotten them back again, which I don't quite understand how this has happened. But uh, at the time I was program director and to my program director colleagues, you know, you know you're, you're Mach five with your hair on fire. Uh, and uh, I loved that job. And I was very busy with our 21 residents. I, I know you, you guys have many more than that, but 21 was all I could I can manage. But we were just in the process of setting up several different uh, NIH funded grants. So I was very busy in academics. And all of a sudden, uh, I found out that I personally had a tumor in the top muscles of my leg and lower muscle of my pelvis. And, um, and I went basically from Mach five to standstill. Um, you know, you go through the existential threat and lo and behold, you're on the other side of the existential threat, the one in a million chance. It's not a sarcoma, but it's actually a, a benign tumor. with a resection you're going to learn how to walk again and you're going to learn how to operate again and it's going to be okay but in that time uh you know i have to say part of my time at macaulay i was john meacham's only friend at macaulay we graduated at the same time john meacham the historian and uh not really he had another friend um but um (laughs) but uh john came over to my house and he's and he said jay there's only so much netflix you can watch you need to start writing some of these stories down that you've been telling us. And my sister said the same thing. And so gradually I began to uh, write down one or two words, just a reminder, you know, I can think of, uh, um, like if I think of the, 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 um, the catfish guy, I can think of a guy that had a catfish hook that was in a place that I would not be able to mention right now in front of a mixed crowd, but that's a story. Um, <laughs> Uh, I can think of the lady with the splenic artery aneurysm who uh, was a wonderful woman that I connected with as an intern and who ultimately I was on vacation and came back and she was the first patient I came to see and she had passed away because the, the aneurysm had ruptured and what impact that had on me. And so stories like that, one or two words, and then and then I began to write them. And so I had this experience um, where uh, I was a visiting professor. I'm at this part of my career career. Um, you know, where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure Dr. Ducker, you know, remembers this, where you're asked to go somewhere, you're the TS Park visiting lecturer at at uh, St. Louis or the Mike Scott at Harvard or the Jack Walker at, at, um, at Utah. These are big names in pediatric neurosurgery, people that had these tremendous impacts on me. So I'm very honored to go. And then a friend of mine invited me to come up to Vermont well, um, you know, I used to be like a really minimalist and then I started packing too much. Like I would pack black shoes and brown shoes or, you know, I need my swim goggles in case there's a pool. And, you know, all of a sudden I've got too much of a bag. And so this time I decided I'm going up for one night and I'm, I'm going to wear the suit to dinner and then I'm going to wear the same suit back on the plane the next day, give the lecture and leave. And I had a little bag, little, I was just very, very proud of myself. And um, I get on the flight from Nashville to, I think it's Baltimore and then Baltimore to Vermont. And on the first flight, uh, we get the call, is there a physician on board? And so I'm like, all right, well, yeah. I'm so I get up and another young woman and we introduce ourselves and she's a nurse practitioner in family practice. And, you know, the, <laughs> the, uh, the stewardess is like, well, I've got a nurse practitioner here. And, and the other one's like, well, I've got a pediatric neurosurgeon here. And uh, I our nurse Patricia said, you're going to be way more useful in this situation than I am. But we went back thinking that it was going to be somebody with chest pain or somebody maybe with some dizzy spell. And I'm telling you, I went back there and there was a man holding a grapefruit sized wad of tissue saturated with blood. It was spewing everywhere. And the first thing I thought of, I admit, was the fact that I was in the only suit that I had for the next 24 hours. I admit that. I can admit that. I can. But um, but we tried to do the things that you learn in scouts or whatever. You know, we pinched the bridge of the nose right in front of, on the other side of the bone. Nothing. It poured out. I saw a couple of empty vodka bottles asking him if he had a high blood pressure. He didn't take his medicine. So he was, it was dripping out like a spigot. So I asked for, for Ad, uh, ad not Advil, um, Afrin. And somebody handed me up some Afrin. And then the nurse practitioner said, and a tampon. And I said, oh, that is brilliant. And I went to the uh, flight attendant and I said, can you ask just overhead for if anybody has a tampon? And so she went to the thing and she said, "Uh, uh, yes, attention, please, Uh, if you have a tampon, can you please ring your bell? So I watched her take this basket that has the pretzels in it, and she dumped it on the floor in the galley, and she passed it back and forth, and brought it back to myself and Laura, the nurse practitioner. And guys, I'm telling you, there was large, medium, small, things with wings, things that didn't have wings. We had so many things to choose from. We could measure and get a perfect way, a perfect size. Put put the. Um, the, uh, um, the neosinephrine on it, um, and inserted it into an orifice that it was not entirely supposed to go into, uh, but it stopped the bleeding. And, uh, and so I wrote that up and my wife, Melissa, who is an adult endocrinologist who everybody says is the much more interesting Dr. Wellens than me. She, um, she's a bit of a critic. Uh, and she read it and she said, you know, Jay, this is, this is funny. This is actually pretty funny. And so, uh, I just boom, sent it into the New York times and Peter Catapano, who I'd mentioned before, it was the Oliver Sacks editor. He read it and said, we're going to run it. And what I didn't know was that, which is kind of so neat because, you know, I, I wish I had more time to talk about it, but a lot of this book is about training residents too and what that's like. And, um, And so I didn't know this, but Peter was like really well known for finding new writers and helping them write more. And so after this piece came out, it stayed up on their top list for a while. And I had a lot of friends say, hey, you're a funny writer. Um, But then Peter said, you know, you um, you are a pediatric neurosurgeon and you I know you have some serious stories. Why don't you think about a serious story and send it to me? So. So I did, and that's the one I'm about to read right now. And the name of this story is called 90 Minutes From You By Ground. On a blustery rainy Saturday in my first year of practice, I went to my office after rounds, put my feet up on my desk, took a sip of lukewarm coffee and leaned back in my chair to relax after a busy morning. Within seconds, I felt the pager clipped to my belt vibrate. I set my mug down on the desk and called the number back. An emergency room doctor from an early hospital immediately picked up and identified himself. Doc, said a clip voice, we got a nine-year-old girl who was a rear passenger in a two-car collision about two hours ago. She's just arrived. The scan shows a three-centimeter subdural hematoma on the right side of her brain. We're a small show. Can you take her? Yes, I said immediately. What's her exam? Her right pupil is blown and she's posturing on the left. The pupil typically dilates on the side of the brain with the increased pressure. In this case, the right side, as the brain is forced down and away from the blood clot. The nerve responsible for pupillary function basically goes haywire and starts to enlarge in response. The term posturing describes a movement pattern that comes from damage being done to the part of the brain that deals with movement. Both are outward signs of high brain pressure. Put bluntly, this girl was sick, getting sicker quickly, and the window to save her was closing. Why don't you already have her in the air, I asked, slightly annoyed. My hospital at the time was in Birmingham, Alabama. Theirs was in Auburn, 100 miles away. A medical helicopter could have her here in just over 30 minutes, well within the window to save her. Weather's too bad between Auburn and Birmingham to fly in. She's 90 minutes from you by ground, at least, he said, clearly knowing what that meant an hour and a half in an ambulance, plus the two hour sensor accident, is a long time to have high intracranial pressure and expect to survive. What do we do, he asked. Even now, when I'm faced with a situation without an obvious solution, my mind goes to my father and the calmness I felt flying next to him as a child. During his more than four decades of service in the Air National Guard, he piloted all types of planes in all types of situations and weather. Early on, he taught me to review the flight checklist before every takeoff and every landing. Once aloft, we would practice emergencies in the air. As we would gain altitude and I would be focused on keeping the plane level on the horizon or interpreting the navigation system, he would quietly feather the props the tiniest amount or trim the flaps just so. Then, as we gently lost airspeed and the altimeter would slowly begin to wind down under his watchful eye, He would have me work the problem until I had it figured out. Flying and problem solving for him went hand in hand and were as much a part of him as breathing. As the brief memory faded, I found myself staring at the worn photo of him that sat on my office desk. He's standing next to an F-4 Phantom, helmet under his arm, grinning wildly in his olive drab National Guard flight suit. Are those Blackhawk helicopters still stationed at that base near you? I asked the emergency room doctor. Yes, but he trailed off. Then he was back. Yes, those guys will fly on anything. You get the Blackhawks, I said. I'll let our operating room know. My office at the time overlooked the street in front of the hospital. After half an hour, I looked down to see the surface of the coffee in my mug rippling in the scene in Jurassic Park, where the approaching T-Rex's footsteps are detected in puddles of water. Within seconds, there were rhythmic pulsations all around, then a strong thump, 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 as the air beat against my window. Outside in the midst of the downpour, trash cans tumbled down the street and pickup trucks were forced down on their shocks. I gazed up to see an Army Black Hawk helicopter, giant in comparison to our standard medical helicopters, hovering steadily over the Children's Hospital helipad rain and fog swirling in all directions. Every part of the office stumped, the heartbeat in my own chest now overpowered. Events moved quickly after the girl's arrival. In the pediatric trauma bay, two of the soldiers who brought her through the storm, still in their wet flight gear, worked alongside our nurses. As I came to the bedside, one of the nurses greeted me by name and the younger, of the two soldiers for some inexplicable reason, immediately snapped to attention a vision of my father in his flight suit flashed in my head. At ease, soldier, I said, I should be saluting you. As we packaged the child up and headed off to the elevator up the operating room, I turned back to the soldiers. There they stood amidst the residual chaos of the trauma room, torn paper packaging and discarded blue gowns strewn about. They watched us roll into the elevator. I locked eyes with the closest soldier, He gave the briefest of nods just before the doors closed. Then he and the chaos of the trauma bay were gone. The OR team was ready for The sterile instruments laid out on the back tables, blue drapes applied after a quick clipping of her hair and lightning fast wash of her head with sterilizing prep solution. In life-saving operations like this, as the clock has ticked past zero, the typical precision of neurosurgery loses out to speed, speed at all costs. Knife, no, damn it. we can stop the skin bleeding later. Retractor, drill, scissors to open the dura, bulging and tight from the underlying blood. The liquid part of the clot jets out around the scissors as we cut. Once the brain is exposed, it does the work for us, extruding most of the solid coagulated clot out in a matter of seconds. We clean out what is left at the edges, and I see the offending vein torn away from the brain during the accident. We coagulate it, and began to make our way out step by step, gently repairing all that we had to take apart to get there. After surgery, she immediately began to stabilize, waking up and even flickering her eyes open. But her recovery took time and her journey was not without cost. She was left with a noticeable weakness on the left side and the slightest slur to her speech. But she was alive. With each follow-up appointment, some hurdle had been overcome. Over time, I would receive updates from her family. She would come to enter and then win a local beauty and talent pageant, be voted most school spirit, cheer alongside friends, dressed as the school mascot, and then one remarkable May Day, graduate from high school. Four years later, she would finish college and head to graduate school for a career in social work. All of this chronicled first in clinic visits, then as the medical reasons to see me faded in holiday cards and the occasional letter. A decade and a half after her injury, I received one such letter. No longer the hand-drawn cards of childhood are newspaper clippings from her proud parents. This was a handwritten note on elegant stationery inviting me to her wedding. Her wedding. I could still see her in the bed at the pediatric ICU after surgery, a nine-year-old child with abrasions on the side of her face from the accident and a clean white head wrap around her head. The nurses methodically connecting her to the monitors, line by line, tube by tube, me urging her to squeeze my hand for a sign, any sign that she was better. Now, years later, I was reading how thankful she was to have been given this chance grateful for those soldiers in that helicopter, for the two hospital teams, and for me. She promised to always have us in mind as she began her new married life and hopefully one day raised her own family. As I read the letter sitting in the different office in a different city, thinking back over those events, I found myself realizing how deeply grateful I was for her evolving story over the years. All the cards, each barrier broken, every milestone, and for what that experience taught me so that other critically ill children in the subsequent years benefited from this early experience when I was learning how hard to push, where to draw the line, and how much to expect of others. My father's lessons in the air, that industrious emergency room doctor, those brave soldiers soaked to the bone standing there as we rolled away, So many people and events came together for this one child to grow into her life, to find happiness, to find love. All of us need a living, breathing reminder to just keep pushing on. There may be a life there to be beautifully and fully lived, a person who just needs someone, anyone, to work the problem, to make the hard call, and to fly in a storm. So when the first piece came out, as I said, I got emails about, hey, you're a funny writer. When the second piece came out, I had hundreds of emails from around the world of people that talked about hope and grace and resilience and how much that piece meant to them. I had uh, a Vietnam vet tell me, that he had 103 fever on the front lines from malaria and the Medevacs weren't flying. And he had a crazy cigar chomping Huey Copter pilot came and got him and flew him out through the, the, you know, the bullets whizzing. And reading the story reminded him of that person and how grateful he was. So I think stories that engender hope that engender compassion that engender empathy and then engender gratitude I think that's another really main reason to write and I think if anything perhaps for me that's the most important reason just in Betsy's words about how her father understood hope I think hope is a very powerful thing for us in medicine does it mean that everybody's going to live or that nobody's going to die or that we're not immune to some suffering in this life. It doesn't matter that we have lived this good life, so to speak, but it gives us a sense of a community. And again, that acknowledgement that we are more alike than we are different. So with that, I would like to close. Thank you all so much for the honor and opportunity of being here to talk a little bit about why we write and why we should write in medicine and why it's a it's a redemptive act, I think, and a, and a very important act. And um, I'm not sure if this part is is engendered into the, or built into the program or not. But I'm I'm happy to take questions from anybody, um, if you would like. So thank you all very much. All right,
3: great.
2: I'm delighted to hear your insight about life. We, all of us, share these deep uh, experiences. You got me insight this minute about why we write? We write because we try to tell the world who we are, just like that lady asked you to tell the story of her, her baby. Yes, I agree. I think, I think it's um, something that's become incredibly important to me. And, um, you know, I don't know how, it, just in full disclosure, I don't know how it's going to affect my career. Um, you know, I was, uh, I've had this wonderful career in full-bore academic neurosurgery. I'm on the executive committee for the American Society of Pediatric Neurosurgeons. I'm, I'm very grateful for it. But but I do feel like this opportunity Uh, that I had to begin to reflect has transformed me. Um, I'll tell a quick, funny story from book tour. Um, And that is that, um, (laughs) so um, the, uh, we had gone from Birmingham to Atlanta and then, um, and then the, the, piece came out in the New Yorker. And so I was just at the top of my, I was like, yes, I am published. This is fantastic. <laughs> and uh, um, my neighbor, my writing mentor and neighbor two doors down and very close friend is Ann Patchett, who you all know is a is wonderful writer. And she's, she and two other um, uh, Margaret Rinkel and Mary Laura Philippot. Mary Laura did a blurb for my book, but the three of them have just been phenomenal writing mentors to me. Which is really cool because I talk about in this book about the importance of training women in neurosurgery. So it's kind of cool how this has just kind of organically happened. But Anne and her advice said, whenever you go to a town, just find the independent bookstore and just go sign books. They love it. They love it when you do that. You know, Parnassus and I'm always going to Parnassus in Nashville and signing books, and it's, it's it's fun. And so we were in. Uh, we finished up in Atlanta and we drove up to Asheville. My son had an ultimate frisbee game. And so we were like, hey, I'm going go to go to Malaprops. It's supposed to be a really good store. You know, I mean, I've been going to all these stores, signing books and everything. So let's go do it. And so we go and uh, walk in and uh, there's I look in the front window and there's no, no book. And I'm like, huh, well, maybe they've got them on the hot new nonfiction table inside. So I, I go inside and I look and I don't. I don't see it on the hot, you know, I'm thinking but I know, maybe they've sold out or something. So I just go and I go talk to the, to the, you know, rap on the plexiglass, you know, the COVID protection. I say, hi, I'm a new author. I just got a book that got reviewed in the New Yorker. And uh, I figured you guys might be out of it. And I didn't know if you had any new books in the back. I'm happy to sign it. My good friend, Ann Patchett says to do that. And he goes, what's the name of the book? And I said, uh, oh, it's called All That Moves Us. He's like, all that moves us, all that moves us. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I know where that is. So he walked, and he walked, and there in the back of the store in the yoga section was all that moves us. (laughs) So I call that my confidence interval, literally, like statistically, but like my own confidence interval of the high and the low. So anyway, that might not have been exactly what you were talking about, but that's the same relevant story to tell, Professor.
1: We have a comment
0: from Hank Jennings I'd like to read. Oh oh my goodness, great lecture. Groupman article in New Yorker is great. Thank you Hank. We have one other. Best choice for this lecture, HO since inception. Book signees are lucky. <laughs>
3: That's so nice. Thank you Hank, I appreciate it. Hey Dr. Wallens, uh, Jim Crow, Program Director for Internal Medicine. So um, your stories have reminded me of several times in my career where I've had this opportunity to, to do narrative medicine, and um, I think it's actually very similar experiences uh, and how healing that is. And it reminds me back when I was a junior faculty at a place in Michigan, and um, we were trying to help the residents uh, to master some ideas around how to deal with the angry patient and how to deal with the lamenting patient. and. These were supposedly the two most common scenarios where there was dissatisfaction and everybody nowadays wants to uh, improve their satisfaction scores. And so we were tasked as a bunch of GME folks to try to create these exercises to help physicians. deal with the lamenting patient and the angry patient. And so we got this idea. We were going to just have people write poems, just sit down and write about angry patients or about lamenting. And it turned out to be the most creative thing I ever did. Like uh, the residents would write these beautiful, amazing stories. And it was just like 10 minutes of just sit down and write what comes out of your mind. Yeah, And um, it was really a very interesting exercise. And I thought it was like a very, poignant and it was a suggestion from a consulting company don't know who they are but it was just a very therapeutic thing and I was like man some of these guys could be published you know yeah. the stories they were writing
2: well it's interesting you know I really um was trained in an older era you know when there were no uh, work hours and uh, you know I fell asleep driving home and you know um, hit the same tree twice on a slow curve and fell asleep operating and so There's no reason for any of that stuff. Uh, I really liked. Uh, I really loved my time as program director, and I really felt close to the residents. And they came to me and they said, and I write about it in the epilogue. But like, hey, we've got some stories to tell. Can we? Uh, can we? Can we have a uh, time to do that? And so I write a little bit about that experience at the end, where the residents came. I was worried that like only three of them were going to show up, and we're going to have all these extra shish kebabs left over. But uh, but they showed, and they you know, they read their stories and they talked about it. And I just, I was astounded how much healthier they seem to be with the ability to talk about it. You know, I was just, what you're saying made me think about, there's a story called Stitches where Delayla is one of my favorite, well, well I may have a lot of favorite patients, but she ultimately passed away of a GBM, which is a high grade malignant t- tumor. And uh, if I had another hour, I would tell you all about, how we failed as a society to get ahead of grade four glioblastomas, it's, it's not changed in its therapy or its outlook in the last 20 years. And uh, we need to do better. Uh, we've done better in all the other, most of the other organs but uh, we certainly have not in brain cancer. But just having to tell the mom, I remember that the, the, what the path was, the evening before discharge, I walked in to tell Leslie Delayla's mom about the final results from pathology and pulled a chair over to sit away from Delayla, who at that point had headphones on, listening to music. I do wonder what Delayla saw while she sat there in bed listening to the music, me leaning forward in the chair, talking to her mother, a concerned look on my face, her mother putting her own face in her hands and crying, me clumsily offering her paper towel in lieu of a tissue, the nearby box on the sink edge empty, us sitting quietly for a while afterwards, then me standing up with a hand on her mother's shoulder, in a few more words, I was gone. Their world forever changed. So, you know, the ability to give bad news and the ability to handle patients, I have a discussion there about angry patients, too. Uh, it's really part and parcel to, to what we do in medicine, because, um, you know, I mean, I've been a patient, and I've gotten angry and upset, too, you know, uh, so... I get it. So, you just have to enter it with compassion. There's an amazing book. I've said Peter's name three times, and I don't mean to do that, but it's just recently come out. It's called About Us. So, the New York Times has a disability series where patients that have spina bifida or spinal cord injury or lupus or something that's affected their lives will write about a 2000 word essay about some meaningful aspect of their life or something that they've learned or something that's being held back or. Somebody wrote a really great essay on the evolution of the handicap symbol, which came out of Norway or Finland. But um, but Peter is the editor of that series, and it's called About Us. And he edited it with an Emory, um, an Emory English professor, Rosemary Garland Thompson, I think, in the Department of Literature. But I always try to end up a talk uh, recommending a book. And uh, I've just bought like 50 of these books to give out to my residents. And other people because they it's just it's just wonderful and if there's any ounce of you right now that's a patient as well as a caregiver or has been a patient in the past or will probably be a patient in the future reading this book and at the end of it being so pointed about really how our society just needs compassion. It is so strong and so good. And I highly recommend it, About about Us is the name of the book. It's an anthology of kind of the best of what's come out of that disability series in the New York Times.
3: Dr. Wells I wanted to share one other story in my past, which is um, I've had a few times that I've been able to go to the American uh, communication, Academy of Communication Healthcare Conferences and they do a very different sort of a thing. They have some lectures and workshops in the morning and then you get to do a personal professional development in the afternoon and I had chosen to do the one called narrative medicine. And so they get you in a group of about six doctors and, and people who are attending and uh, they have a facilitator and a facilitator in training. And they just start with a prompt, like, you know, I feel bliss when, and then they say, write for 10 minutes, and it can rhyme. It doesn't have to rhyme. And everybody writes for 10 minutes. And then if you feel comfortable, you share your story and I mean, it was just amazingly powerful, like all the stuff that comes out. And, you know, we heard about one of the facilitators' uh, husband dying of a brain tumor, which you kind of inspired me to think about there. Yeah. But, you know, someone else with experience with genital mut- mutilation. And it's just amazing, like all the stuff that would come out, uh, stuff that people carry with them. And uh, the opportunity to just to sit in a, a fine group and write about something was amazingly healing. And powerful. So I echo what is, you're saying.
2: Like somebody that's had this, a similar day to what you've had. You know, like I was saying before, that's the reason why people have been getting around fires and telling stories for the longest times. I cannot tell you how many of my friends that I've had for years and years and years and years read this book to me and said, I had no idea this is what you did. No idea. So, um, Maybe that's another reason to tell our stories, too, to get a sense of what it is that we do inside this medical world because it's important stuff.
0: Hi. Wonderful presentation. Thank Thank you you. so much. Um, I wondered if you've heard from any of your literature professors back in Mississippi and how proud of you I'm sure they must be.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it's so interesting that you ask. So the answer to that is yes. Um, I actually... Um, um. Just, just to bear with me for one minute. So, one of the most fun parts of this was the acknowledgments. I'm not kidding. It was just like one person's advice was just acknowledge like one paragraph, and and Meacham's advice was, "This is your first book. You need to thank everybody back to the person that delivered to you as a baby." <laughs> And so uh, I did write, I write all about all these medical people, but I said, in addition to those noted in the prologue, it's critical to recognize the role of three professors in the Department of English at the University of Mississippi in the late 1980s who supported me early on as a student of literature and later into my life in medicine. Chris Fitter, now a professor at Rutgers University, Colby Coleman, professor emeritus at University of Mississippi. He's since passed away. And Gregory Shermer, also professor and chair emeritus at the University of Mississippi. In order, one connected me to Shakespeare, one to Swift, and one to Joyce and Yates. For these lifelong gifts, I'll be forever grateful. Dr. Fitter, you were right. There is always an applicable Shakespeare quote, even in the operating room, perhaps especially in the operating room. Um, so I do have the opportunity to go back and be a visiting professor in the Department of English um, at the university, and I am really looking forward to that. Um, to have the opportunity to speak to students about um, not just pre-med students, but students that are in the humanities about how important um, an um, education and fundamental an education in the humanities is, so no matter what it is that we do, this common understanding about kind of what the human condition is like. It's just critically important. But Dr. Fitter did write me a letter and uh, that was kind of fun, yeah. Well, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you all so much for letting me do this. I um, can tell this is a wonderful community and uh, just a lot of smiling faces out here. So thank you for being so welcoming to me. So thanks.
4: Yeah. Thank you. Well, um, my name is Chris Bray, and I'm the president of the Northeast Georgia Health System Foundation. And it is an honor to be here tonight uh, to hear such uh, such a great speaker. Um, oh, thank you. We work in philanthropy at the foundation, and we get to deal with gratitude every day. But I'm sure that uh, hearing hearing some of your stories, and, and I'm sure we could probably sit here and listen to about a thousand more because of uh, one the way you read them I thought it was great um, but two I'm sure you have a bunch of those stories of people you've touched every day and and we're just we're just so grateful that you're here um, you. to do this so I want to thank you all uh, in attendance um, both virtually and uh, in person so nice to be back here in person again I think this is the first time in three years we've been able to get this uh, this lectureship together um, also want to thank our GME staff I um, want to thank you for your commitment to bringing compelling and and um, and just wonderful, impactful stories and speakers to this, uh, to this program and bringing this lectureship to life. Um, I know that uh, you all work tirelessly to put this on, not just uh, for tonight, uh, but all throughout the year of planning and figuring out who's going to come. And um, I think your challenge has been always to, how do we make the next one better? And, uh, and I think again, uh, Dr. Well you've challenged us with uh, finding something that could possibly be better than tonight, so thank you for that. Um, I do want to thank you for, for your time and for your travel and for being here and sharing these stories. Um, It's incredible. Um, I want to thank in person, uh, the reverends David and Betsy Jennings Powell who are seated seated right over here. We can just thank them for their commitment to this program and this lectureship with their financial gift to support it. Thank you all. I've not forgotten about Dr. Hank Jennings and his wife, um, Polly, who are virtually with us, but I want to thank them for their support of this program as well. Um, I want to thank our medical community. Your presence here tonight uh, demonstrates your commitment to learning. um, And and it shows that you not only um, uh, find appreciation in these lectureships, but I think you find value in it by being here and hearing these great stories. Uh, We've got several board members from the foundation who are here. I want to thank you all for your support of our community and for all the things you do. Um, So I have been told that I'm in the way of the reception. So uh, there is food (laughs) and drink outside. I want to again, once again, thank Dr. Wellens for being here. I want to thank you all for being here as well. And um, after a raffle, raffle, a raffle for a couple of books, uh, we will get, uh, we'll get out to the reception. So thanks again.